Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Christina Matina, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we're talking with the lead author of a study published in our December 2021 issue. The article, Variation in Early Diffusion of Secubitril Valsartan and Implications for Understanding Novel Drug Diffusion, describes how prescribing of the newly approved heart failure drug spread across the nation. Joining us today is Dr. Lauren Gilstrap of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Good morning. Thank you so much for this opportunity. My name is Lauren Gilstrap. I am a cardiologist by clinical training. I work at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center up in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and I am a health services researcher. Um, I work at the Dartmouth Institute and have been fortunate to work with a great group of colleagues uh, on this study, and I look forward to talking to you about it. What was the objective of this study, and why did you decide to investigate it? So I am, as I mentioned, you know, a clinical cardiologist, and I, I'm actually a heart failure transplant specialist. And so secubitril valsartan, which you guys are probably more commonly recognized as Intresto, um, you've probably seen the ads for it on TV, um, is a, it was sort of a, a revolutionary drug that came on the market for us um, a couple of years ago. And it, it's interesting. It was studied in a study called Paradigm, which sort of turned out to ironically be a bit of a perfect name for it. It was compared to a class of drugs that we had had for patients with heart failure, which is just a clinical condition where the heart doesn't pump enough blood to the rest of the body. Um, and we sort of compared it to an older class of drugs that we've had since the 1990s. These drugs are called ACE inhibitors um, or ARBs. Uh, folks may be familiar with them, have family members on them. Um, they're used in a variety of different conditions. And so essentially the, the old therapy, ACE inhibitors, and, and the new therapy, Entresto, were sort of compared head to head in this study of patients with heart failure in, in a study called the Paradigm HF trial. And for the first time in you know, more than a decade, they found a really significant benefit over and above existing therapy for this new drug. So Entresto was 20% better at keeping people alive and keeping people out of the hospital. So in my world, that's a, that's a paradigm shifting finding, right? That being said, like, like most new drugs that come on the market, there are strings attached. Intresto is more expensive than the lisinopril, which is probably the most commonly used ACE inhibitor that you can get on the $4 generic menu at sort of any local pharmacy. And so the question we had is knowing the benefit of this drug, um, sort of as demonstrated in the clinical trials, how excited or not excited were clinicians going to be about switching patients from, you know, arguably a time-tested cheaper therapy to this potentially a lot better, but perhaps a bit more expensive intresto therapy. And this is a bit of an, a, a more nuanced question than sort of just standard diffusion stuff, because there was an existing therapy. When you study diffusion of a new drug when there's nothing on the market, it's kind of a bit of a, 
uh, black and white comparison. It's a little bit more straightforward. Not only did providers in this situation have to decide to use the new drug, they had to decide to stop a drug that was theoretically probably working pretty well for patients and sort of gamble on this on this new drug that that purported to have a, a markedly better um, you know, sort of markedly better outcome profile. So it was it was interesting for a number of clinical reasons, and that made it an interesting policy question as we sort of have more and more new and expensive drugs coming onto the market, figuring out what drives these changes and sort of incorporation into practice is important as we think about sort of how to best use novel therapies without skyrocketing the cost of, of patients' prescription drugs. Well, can you talk about the main findings of your study? Sure. So, so we basically looked at the uptake of uh, Entresto between about 2016 and 2018 in a group of Medicare beneficiaries. The reason we chose Medicare beneficiaries is, is sort of several fold. One, it, it's convenient. Um, two, we get longitudinal data. Three, 80% of deaths and heart failure occur in people over age 65. So this is a population where the drug has arguably the most potential to do the most good. And you've got part D. So I've sort of got a standard prescription drug benefit working in the background. When you examine this and other people have done it, in commercial claims, you've got a lot of issues around sort of different generosities of prescription drug programs. So sort of doing it in Medicare with part D sort of allowed me to use a population that arguably stood to benefit more than the average you know, sort of patient and allowed me to hold a lot of the things around prescription drug benefits or prescription drug generosities the same. And what we found was there was significant variation between 2016 and 2018. Rates were a good bit lower than we expected. You know, we, we sort of started with a, a group of patients with heart failure, um, specifically sort of heart failure with, with what we call reduced ejection fraction, which is the group of patients that you're sort of were eligible for this drug. Um, we found about 4,000 patients in 2016, about 7,500 patients in 2017, so about an 83% increase, and then about 10,000 patients uh, in 2018. So an 83% increase and then only about a 25% increase. So lower rates of use than we expected, although there had been some pr uh, previous studies that had suggested that. And then a lot of variation sort of geographically. We, so we saw sort of some hot spots if you will, sort of in the, the Southern Atlantic region and sort of going up in the mid-Atlantic region and largely in the Northeast, particularly in 2016. Those were really the main places that were, were giving patients in Tresto. Between 2017 and 2018, the West Coast sort of caught up. They had really low use rates in 2016, but then dramatically increased use rates between 2017 and 2018, such that by the end of 2018, it was pretty stable sort of in those three big regions with the Midwest lagging behind significantly having sort of the lowest use rates in the country. We did some cool things where we looked at out-of-pocket copays to see how much we thought that was driving sort of drug diffusion. Not surprisingly, the, the more expensive a drug is, the harder it is to sort of get patients to, to sort of pay more to take it. And while we did find higher costs in areas with lower rates of utilization and lower costs in areas with higher rates of utilization, 
when we controlled for out-of-pocket copays, we still found significant geographic variation, leading us to conclude that, sure, copays play a role, but arguably providers making a decision, clinicians making a decision to try to initiate therapy in the first place, those prescriber patterns probably plays a bigger role in in the long run. And that's sort of consistent with some stuff that we found in previous studies. Right. So were you surprised by any of these variations in uptake? A little bit. So we had done a study a couple of years ago looking at sort of the new drugs in diabetes um, that had sort of come on the market. There's been a a rash of new diabetes drugs that sort of came on the market, uh, you know, about five years ago or so. And what we found in that study was that most of the early uptake was sort of driven by one or two or three providers giving the drug a lot. And those sort of hotspot providers tend to act like a blooming flower almost because what what we sort of hypothesized and, and clinically, I think this makes the most sense. If you've got a patient, you know, sort of this potentially eligible for a drug, but you, the provider have never used the drug before. You don't know sort of what dose to start at. You don't know what lab monitoring is required. You don't know really sort of how to counsel the patient around side effects to sort of expect, it's a lot easier to just leave them on the drug that they're already on, right? However, when you get one or two sort of providers in an area who start giving a new drug, those providers, obviously, sort of those patients are seen by other providers, and people get a little bit more familiar. Now you've got people coming into your office who are on new drug A or new drug B, and the patients don't have horns, they don't have a tail, and you're like, okay, maybe this drug isn't quite so scary. And so it it tends to drive a little bit more familiarity with the drug. And then patients, you know, sort of make comments like, I feel so much better on this drug. And then you think to yourself as a provider, well, maybe I should try this. You know, I want my patients to feel as good as they possibly could. And so that's sort of what we hypothesize is happening here. Interestingly, a study not done by our group, but but done by some other guys at the Dartmouth Institute showed that when providers participate in clinical trials, so sort of the clinical trial to get a drug approved, those people tend to become, not surprisingly, some of those early adopter hotspot providers. Um, And our guess, sort of based on the fact that, you know, we saw a lot of use in the Northeast, where we've got a lot of big academic medical centers, you've got a lot of use in the South, where you've got the vast majority of heart failure patients concentrated. Those may have been areas where you had providers that participated in the paradigm trial and other sort of early clinical trials for Entresto that were perhaps a little bit more comfortable with giving the drug. It was a bit of an easier transition to incorporate it into their regular practice. Right. So you mentioned the clinical trials, but did you think of any other potential explanations for some regions being more likely to prescribe than others? Of course, because that's what we're that's what we're supposed to do. Um, so the other sort of thing that we noticed, I mean, you've got great medical centers in the Midwest, you know, um, and the the rate of heart failure in the Midwest is not as high as it is in other geographic regions. But we sort of wondered when we observed the variation why it appeared the Midwest was lagging behind. And so when we looked at the patients that were most likely to get in Tresto, they were by and large younger, healthier, 
as sort of evidenced by fewer comorbidities. Um, they tended to be more socioeconomically affluent and they tended to be white. Um, and that was consistent with some work that had been done by some of our colleagues that had used commercial claims data to sort of ask this, ask a similar question. And so the, the sort of hypothesis that grows from that is when you've got a new drug, you're not sure how people are going to respond. You don't want to give it to the oldest, frailest, sickest patient that you've got. Um, you sort of potentially want to give it to sort of younger, healthier people. Well, that didn't really jive with what we know about the average heart failure patient in the Midwest. If you sort of use CDC data and you look at age and comorbidity burdens and things like that of a heart failure patient in the Midwest and a heart failure patient in the South, just at a population level, the people in the Midwest, quote unquote, look healthier. So why were the providers not sort of taking the risk, if you will, and sort of gambling on this new drug with a larger proportion of healthy, quote unquote, heart failure patients? Our, the hypothesis we ultimately came up with was really just clinical inertia. And this gets back to the point I made earlier about the fact that this study is unique because there already was a drug available. There was sort of a time-tested, dirt-cheap alternative. And many of the patients, you know, in the Midwest, we hypothesized were probably doing really well on their ACE inhibitor. And it's a lot harder as a provider to risk upsetting an apple cart for a theoretical advantage of a drug that's been demonstrated in a trial. If you've got a patient who's 65 years old and you know gardening and farming and going to work and doing all of his things and living his life and he's been on his 20 milligrams of lisinopril for the last 15 years with no issues, it's a little bit of a harder sell to say, why don't we stop this thing that seems like it's working really well for a you know potential benefit over the long haul of you know this this newer in many cases, more expensive therapy. So I think I think clinical inertia plays a role. And I think that's probably, if I had to guess, what we're seeing borne out in the data coming out of the Midwest. Are there any other questions around new drug diffusion that you'd like to see investigated? About three million, probably. I mean, <laughs> this is this is part of what I do, and I find this stuff super interesting. I think from a policy perspective, it matters a lot because pharmaceutical companies are doing a lot of work. They really want to find a way to make diseases more treatable, to make patients' lives more manageable. And so new drugs are coming onto the market at a very rapid pace. We have treatments for diseases now that didn't exist when I finished residency only a few years ago. The kick is in the vast majority of cases, these new therapies, be them novel chemotherapy agents for previously untreatable cancers, things like tefamidus for TTR amyloid, things like PCSK9 inhibitors for diseases as prevalent as high cholesterol, these drugs carry incredibly high price tags. And that gets tricky when you start to balance issues of equitable access to sort of the newest, latest, and greatest. You start to get into issues of, is the benefit worth the cost? You start to get into issues of, why should somebody be eligible to get a drug for zero copay because they have this particular you know, pharmacy benefit versus this patient who's being told they have to pay $100,000 out of pocket. So it, it brings up a lot of issues that we as clinicians face on a daily basis. By and large, most doctors just want to get their patient the best treatment they think is available for whatever the condition is. And the hurdles that we face a lot of times in getting these 
getting these therapies for patients are challenging. And, and if at the end of the day, we're, we as providers are trying to give therapies that don't actually have benefits that exceed the cost, then perhaps some of these things like prior authorizations um, and the, the sort of peer-to-peer reviews and the hoops that we sometimes have to jump through, perhaps those things are, are valid and, and should be used. For, for things where you know, there is a very clearly demonstrated benefit and, and not a whole lot of risk on the patient side, we as a society need to sort of think about alternative ways to be able to get these drugs for patients more easily without providers having to you know, potentially jump through as many hoops and without patients having to you know, take out a mortgage on their home in order to sort of pay for a potentially life-saving therapy. There's gotta be some middle ground between one extreme and the other. And I think understanding more about what drives providers to do this and what drives people to seek these therapies is a great place to start in thinking about how to craft policy solutions to address some of these questions. Right, well, we'd love to see that research published in AJMC. That's the end of my questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? No, this was great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, it was a fun study to do. You can imagine doing it, you know, similar things with a lot of other drugs. You know, most drugs that are sort of new and coming on the market, um, they've got nuances about them. You know, some of them are injection drugs, for example. Some of them are chemotherapy drugs. They're potentially high benefit, but carry some really real risks. Different drugs are different and figuring out how to sort of carefully think about covering them going forward so that patients who need them can get them, but they're not exposed to undue risk, I think is a, a big challenge and one I look forward to, to hopefully beginning to crack. Great. Thank you for joining us. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 